people should already be getting the sense here that Aristo is pretty, pretty hardcore, skirting that line between cynic and stoic, really focused on ethics, really focused on practical living. Welcome to Stoic Conversations. In this podcast, Michael Tremblay and I discuss the theory and practice of Stoicism. Each week, we'll share two conversations, one between the two of us, and another will be an in-depth conversation with an expert. In this conversation, Michael and I talk about the Stoic heretic Aristo of Chios. He's an important figure to know because understanding his disagreements with the Orthodox Stoics, the philosophers who would become the Orthodox Stoics, is an excellent way to understand Stoicism itself, and also a way to engage in debates that are happening today. So Aristo challenged the place of physics and logic in the Stoic system, and he also disputed the role of precepts. These are two debates, two issues that are discussed today by modern practitioners. There's this question, is Stoicism a system which parts of the ancient philosophy need to be updated, and so on? And there's also debates over the role of heuristics, life hacks, life advice in the Stoic community. Well, these are things that Aristo challenged hundreds of years ago. And in this conversation, you'll understand why he did that, what the orthodox responses were to his challenges, and how Michael and I think about these issues today. Here is our conversation. And here is our conversation. Welcome to Stoic Conversations. My name is Caleb Ontiveros. And I'm Michael Tremblay. And today we're going to be talking about the ancient Stoic Aristo. Do you want to take it away, Michael? Yeah. Uh, so this is the second part of a sub-series we're doing on lesser-known Stoics. So there's obviously Seneca, Epictetus, Marcus Aurelius. They're very famous, but... The school of Stoic philosophy existed 300, 350 years before Marcus Aurelius. So there's a lot of interesting people that developed this school of philosophy, pushed the ideas along, and we're digging into some of those characters, some of those real-life thinkers, and some unique or distinct parts of their thinking. Last time we did, we did an episode on Masonius Rufus, Epictetus' teacher, and this one's about Aristo. So for those that are, are less familiar with who that is, let's, let's take it all the way back to the beginning, to when Stoicism was founded. And he's a bit of a bad boy in Stoic philosophy, I would say. Kind of a, an interesting character because he's an outsider, but he's not an opposite school. So it's very common in ancient philosophy to have these you know, opposing forces. So the Stoics would argue against the Epicureans, or they would argue against the cynics, or maybe they would argue against the skeptics or Aristotelians, the peripatetics. But Aristotle was somebody who considered himself a Stoic, believed, you know, depending on what parts of Stoicism you think are most important, 90% of the things that are important about Stoicism, but really pushed back against other parts that the ancients took to be fundamental to what Stoicism was. So Zeno was the founder of Stoicism around 300 BC in Athens, and Aristotle was a student of Zeno's. So they are right from the very beginning. And as I said, he, he, he was somebody who, right when Stoicism started, pushed back and said, no, you know, these parts are right, but I disagree with these other parts. And if Stoicism is going to work, we have to throw these parts out and we have to keep these, these parts or push these parts further and change them. And I think historically, it's, it's interesting because it was really this, this moment, this divide in Stoicism. And the, the next founder of the school was Cleanthes after Zeno, and then after Cleanthes was Chrysippus. And you really have that line of Stoicism winning, but it could have been this other line of Aristotle's line and his approach to Stoicism, which is one, as we'll get into, which focused a lot more on ethics. It really rejected or downplayed physics and logic, and it, it made some controversial claims in ethics which 
you know, Stoicism itself is full of controversial claims. So it was it was saying things that the the Stoics disagreed with while still claiming to be a Stoic. So, so interesting picture. In terms of Aristotle's beliefs that I wanted to get into, we're going to talk about three things in this episode. Three things that were unique about his conception of Stoicism. The first, as I already mentioned, was a rejection of logic and physics. So the ancient Stoic view, I should really say the, I guess the Orthodox Stoic view now, right? Because we're not just talking about Aristotle was also an ancient Stoic, but the Orthodox view is that Stoicism has three parts. All the parts are interconnected and all the parts are necessary. And that's the physics, which is the conception of the way the universe is, which includes the arguments about God, arguments about providence, arguments about the divine rational nature of all matter. Mm -hmm. That's physics. Then there's logic, which is how we come to know things. So this kind of epistemology, but also the Stoics were innovators in formal logic. The actual, the study, when you think of logic in university, sitting down, there's these math, looks like mathematical equations on the page and you're solving, you're, you're deducing proofs that was part of the Stoic curriculum. And then only the third part was ethics. The part that, that really gets emphasized today and the part I would say I'm most interested, that was, that was the third part. And Aristotle rejected physics and logic as being unnecessary and focused just on ethics. So that was the first one, the rejection of two parts of the three parts of Stoic philosophy and the focus just on ethics. Another change or innovation in Aristotle's thought was that he rejected preferred indifference, or the idea of preferred or dispreferred indifference. So in Stoicism, there's virtue is the, is the only good, vice is the only bad. But then when we get out into action, we get out into things, when we navigate the world, there are some things that are preferred or dispreferred. You know, it's better all things being equal to have health. It's better all things equal not to be, you know, sick or injured. And Aristotle thought this was, didn't make any sense. This was a ridiculous theory, ridiculous part of Stoic ethics, and it should be thrown out. The third part is that he rejected precepts. And what precepts are, are specific pieces of advice about, you know, if you're a Stoic and you find yourself in a situation where, you know, your boss is, is treating you this way, you should do this. Or, you know, we were just talking about Masonius Rufus in a previous episode. Masonius Rufus has, loves these precepts. He gets into really particular advice. You know, how should a Stoic dress? How should a Stoic cut their beard? What should a Stoic do in marriage? What should a Stoic do if they're insulted? Should they, should they bring that person to court? If they're, if they're wrong, should they, should they sue people who have harmed them? And these are these really particular pieces of advice. They also thought this was, this was ridiculous and rejected this. Thought, you know, this was not the right way to think about ethics. This was, this was an unhelpful and unproductive way to think about ethics. So really framing a lot of these things negatively, because we don't have remaining writings by Aristotle, we just know what he said that was controversial that people are still arguing against hundreds of years later, being like, oh, this guy said this. Wow, that, that was very different. We disagree with it for these reasons, but we still, have, we still have his thinking in that sense. But a lot of it is it will emphasize the way that he broke from Stoicism, because that's what the Stoics will talk about, or Orthodox Stoicism, I should say. Anything you want to add, Kill, before I jump into those? Yeah, so we've got this early Stoic figure. I think it's worth emphasizing that there's some amount of contingency and the history of Stoicism where you did have these two competing elements of Aristo, one, t one student of Zeno and another student of Zeno, Cleanthes. And they, they wrote works arguing with each other, and it, which we no longer have, unfortunately. But it, and it turns out that the, the Cleant side of the Cleanthes and later Chrysippus were the dominant sides in ancient Greece at any rate. So I think that's worth emphasizing. And then, yeah, let's hop into some of these ancient Stoic heresies, as it were. So let's, <laughs> let's do the first one. I know, I'm, I'm, I'm upset just talking about these. How, how dare he? So, yeah, uh, that's some, that's, it's some cool history, right? You think, about, you think about this battle and it's gone one way, but could have gone the other. So the first one I, I wanted to talk about was the rejection of logic, logic and physics. So as I already talked about, three parts of the Stoic school of thought, logic, physics, and ethics. And one of the things, you know, we, we could probably do an episode on this, but the Stoics were famous for professing that philosophy was a system. And what they meant by it as a system was that it would, 
kind of locked into place, all of these truths built on each other and they were all required. If one piece of Stoic philosophy was removed or untrue, the entire system would fall apart. So they, they really, the, the Orthodox Stoics really believed, look, we need these arguments we make about God. We need these arguments we make about the nature of the universe to be true. If they're not true, we've lost all the ethics or you know, we at least don't have the arguments for the ethics that we would have. So they, they saw ethics and logic as being interconnected and necessary. And Diogenes Laertes, who's a, a famous biographer of philosophers, wrote about Aristo, quote, that he abolished the topics of physics and logic, saying that the former is beyond us and the latter none of our concern. Ethics is the only topic which concerns us. He compared dialectical arguments to spider's webs. Although they seem to display some expertise, they're completely useless. So a couple of interesting things. One is this, this, this rejection of, I guess, the intellectualization or the, you know, the more theoretical parts of philosophy. And the second, uh, a skeptical argument about God and about the nature of the world. So he rejected physics and with it, this conception of the Stoic, the Stoic God as being beyond us. And what he meant by that was that it, it was not something that we had access to. It was not something that we could make a claim about. And I think this is really, I think it's really interesting. You know, we just talked to Chris Fisher, who is the host of the Stoicism on Fire podcast. And you can listen to, to, to that episode as well. And he is a proponent of what he calls traditional Stoicism, which is this view that this orthodox position that you require the physics to make sense of the ethics. You require the Stoic God to make sense of the ethics. And here was Aristo 300 BC saying, look, I, I, I don't think I can even make, I, I can't even talk about God. Like that's not something that I have access to. That's not something I can make arguments about. This is very agnostic argument. And because of that, because we, we don't know about it and because logic and these complex theoretical debates aren't helpful, we should just focus on ethics. So for him, it was this 100% ethics, toss out the rest. And I, I wouldn't say in terms of logic, I should clarify, it, it, it's not, not anti-reasoning. It's not anti-logic in terms of, you know, wanting to come to truth and wanting to understand the way the, way the world works as well as you can. But I think it's, it's, it's anti-being too theoretical. So th things you also see in Epictetus, when the logic starts to take away from the action or the 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 you know, theoretical debates begin to take away from character development. Right. You have, I think he's talking about logic in a sense that there's Aristotelian logic or later the Stoics develop their own kind of logic. And here logic means symbolic formal system, which is a way of making sense out of different claims and how they relate, relate to each other. So that's the sort of thing that it's almost scientific, more uh, deeply philosophical that he is resistant to. I don't think he's by any means sort of abandoning reasoning as a, as a tool or the way we might say logical reasoning today in a ordinary conversation. Yeah. So what is your, what's your view on his rejection of those first two parts of Stoic philosophy? Yeah, it's, it's interesting because the, so we talked, we did we chatted with Chris Fisher, as you mentioned, and in some respects, it does seem like on the logic side, there's less of an issue. Stoics today don't pay that much attention to formal logic. And sure, maybe there's a warning that Stoics shouldn't spend so much time purely during theory, but I think most people agree with that. It's always good to have a reminder now and again, not to get lost in your books, get lost in different, you know, dorm room type sessions. But I think most people agree with that. So that perhaps that's less, less controversial or actionable today. On the other hand, the rejection of physics is something that people still debate. So I think that's, that's worth thinking about more. And I think it's also worth just spending a bit more time highlighting why that would matter, why that would be so controversial. So on the Stoic view, what it is to live well is to live according to nature. And that means aligning yourself, aligning your character with nature, which is the Stoic God. It's not just aligning yourself with some inert sort of scientific laws, but there's some picture of value, of providence, 
what we would call teleology of purpose that you're al aligning yourself with. And Aristo is saying, I don't know about that. We don't need that. Maybe there is such a thing at the foundation of the universe, but how could I know about that as a one individual? And that is, I think, a substantive thing that many people, Stoics and non-Stoics, of course, disagree about. So just highlighting, I think that's, would you agree with that, that that's probably the main controversial point here is his point about physics. And most people are probably largely on board with, with the thought on, on logic. Yeah. The few, the few people listening who are really, really into formal logic are like, this is, that is just as important. We can't, we can't lose that. But no, I would agree that the, the, the physics claim is more controversial. I would say both historically and in a contemporary context, as you said, and you know, the idea of living in accordance with nature as living in accordance with our nature is part of it, but also, as you said, living in accordance with the whole of nature, the universe, which is divine, which is imbued with rationality, and which is ultimately providential or ultimately you know, unfolding in a good way would be, the, would be the orthodox or the ancient Stoic claim. And, you know, Epictetus has this line about if the foot knew that it was part of the body, the foot would wish to be muddy. And that was the way that he viewed how you got over hard things that happened to you. As you if something bad happened to you, if you view yourself as just a foot, well, this is my, I'm all muddy, <laughs> you know, this is terrible. But if you understood yourself as part of a larger thing, a larger, you know, a larger entity, part of a larger universe, playing a role within that universe, that was how you understood, you know, you're getting muddy to be serving some greater purpose. And so as you pointed to, but in two claims here, one, we can't know that, but, and that's what a skeptic would say, right? An ancient skeptic would say that. But the interesting part, I guess, is two, we can't know that, but it doesn't matter. We can still have the ethics. We can still move forward with the ethics of stoicism which is something that an ancient skeptic wouldn't say. Right. And I, I don't know to what extent we know what Arist, how Aristo answers follow-up questions to that, which the obvious follow-up question, question is, okay, well then why, what grounds virtue, what grounds your ethical picture? If you're a traditional Stoic a, on the side of Zeno, then you have at least the beginning of an answer. Nature grounds our virtue, both human nature and nature as a whole. But I don't know to what extent Aristo believed in a human nature. I guess he did, but maybe not. Do you know? No, I don't. I don't actually know. There might be there might be a fragment on it. I haven't been I haven't been exhaustive in my research in terms of reading literally everything we have from Aristo before this. But I, I I would have read most of it at some point, and I can't recall any sort of argument here or any sort of backup. I do know that Cicero makes a counter argument that basically that says that at least Cicero didn't have something satisfying as a backup where Cicero basically says, you know, Aristotle, Aristotle's position is nonsense. It's nonsensical. We mm -hmm. have no way of making sense of how to navigate indifference. We have no way of making sense of what is virtuous versus not without this, without this physics. So I don't, I don't have access or I haven't read it. And I, I can, I guess I can say that at least Cicero didn't either. If he had one that was compelling, and maybe if he had one of, that was compelling, he wouldn't have lost out to Cleanthes at Christmas. Yeah, that might be too optimistic. But there's a, I think my my position is probably pretty, my considered position is probably pretty close to Aristo's. But I am, it's a pity we don't have as much by way of knowing what he would actually say to these objections. Great. So moving on to the second part. So first part was the rejection of physics and logic this focus on ethics, leaving maybe this question open because we have a couple fragments of, of how we grounded that ethics, but still didn't think we needed the Stoic God to do so, which is a pretty controversial claim for the time. And then we'll move into ethics itself. So even in the domain of ethics, he said some controversial things. He was, you know, pushing back against the Stoic view, which, which I love. I, I think Stoicism gains a lot from battling against other schools. But it gains a lot when people are pushing it from the inside too. So I think this stuff is very fun. So the, the second piece is that he rejected the idea of preferred or dispreferred indifference. So as I, I hit on quickly at, at the, the start of the episode, really important Stoic argument for ethics is this idea around preferred indifference or their, their opposite, dispreferred indifference. This is the view that 
you know, outside of virtue and vice, which are really good and really bad, all things being equal, some things are better than others and some things are worse than others. So all things being equal, as a, the example I gave, it's, you know, it's better to have money, health, uh, probably company of other people, pleasure, it, it, all things being equal. These are the kind of things that are beneficial. And the, the way the Stoics grounded this argument was we have different roles. We talked about this in terms of our role ethics. Ultimately, our highest role is that of rational beings. And those are the beings that, you know, decision makers, minds, and those are the things that are connected to virtue and vice, acting well, doing well. But then we, we're also embodied minds. We're also like animals and, you know, things like food, pleasure, health, money to, to spend it with, company. These are the things that kind of benefit that, that lower, I guess, that animal side of ourselves. And so we should never choose wealth or money or fame or anything like this in a way that would compromise our virtue. But if we can have those things without compromising our virtue, we should take them. And not only should we take them, it's actually weird if we don't take them. You know, if we choose to just, if a Stoic says, well, I'm just going to not eat food because it's not virtue, that's a kind of a weird thing to do. It's not only a weird thing to do, it's, it's harmful. You're making a mistake about not selecting a preferred indifferent when nothing was at stake. If, if nothing's at stake, you should select the preferred indifference. You shouldn't, you shouldn't mutilate your body. You shouldn't run away, like uh, exclude, like abandon your family or, or go live by yourself and reject social interaction. All things being equal, you should select these if your character is not at stake. Aristotle, so Aristotle rejected this division as meaningless. He thought this was, a, this was a silly division to make, and in practice, it made no sense when you try to apply it in your ethics. And the argument for this, I have an excerpt from Sextus Empiricus, who's a famous Greek skeptic who wrote about Aristotle. And he said, Aristotle denied that health and everything similar to it is a preferred indifferent. For to call it a preferred indifferent is equivalent to judging it a good and different practically in name alone. But we don't prefer anything unless the situation calls for it. For if healthy men had to serve a tyrant and be destroyed for this reason, while the sick had to be released from service, the wise man would choose sickness in this circumstance than health. And so the, the argument here, breaking that down, breaking down that quote, is that in practice, whether or not I select something, whether or not I choose health, there never is health in the abstract. There only is ever health in the particular moment. And whether I choose health in the particular moment is going to depend on whether or not it is the virtuous thing to do, whether or not it is the correct selection in that particular circumstance. So the knowledge that health is good in the abstract, it either A, makes no sense, or B, that other objection here, you're calling it good, you're giving it some sort of other quality, but that other quality doesn't doesn't get brought into the particular circumstance where you have to make a choice. Because right. when you have to make a choice, sometimes it's good to be healthy and sometimes it's bad, like if you're having to serve, serve a tyrant, for example. I think it's also worth situating this in the common way you divide up some of the ancient philosophical schools is you have the cynics who believe that virtue is the only good, and then you have the Aristotelians who believe that virtue is good, but there are a handful of other things that were good as well and that were important to have in a life well-lived, even things that, which you, that you don't have uh, direct control over. And usually the Stoics are portrayed as being in between those two positions. So you have the view that virtue is the only, only fundamentally good thing. It's necessary and sufficient for living a good life. But there are also these things that you might naturally prefer, such as health, riches, and status, and what have you. So that is a picture that Aristotle is at least putting a question mark next to, and he's at least theoretically a lot closer to the cynic view that virtue is, is the only good when he makes this objection. Yeah, and I think historically it's worth noting, right? So Zeno was a student of cynicism, and so we're a lot closer to cynicism here in Aristotle's time. So you say it's, it's closer to cynicism philosophically, but it's closer to cynicism historically from someone like Epictetus, you know, 300, 400 years later, these are people who, you know, I don't have the exact dates in front of me, but possibly knew Diogenes, the cynic, mm -hmm. and if not, then at least Zeno did. And so, so there is that kind of direct content. And I, I guess that historical battle between, as you said, finding that middle way 
or, well, does all of this just kind of get reduced into cynicism anyway, right? Like, is there anything? And the cynics, as you said, like, I was giving a bunch of examples about how it's weird to throw away social norms, all things being equal. It's weird to, you know, go against these, go against these, these preferred indifference, but at least in social settings, the cynics were very willing to do this, very willing to kind of push back against social norms because they thought, hey, it's, everything's, it's all about virtue or vice. And if it's neither of those, then, you know, what do I care if you think I'm being weird or if I'm sleeping in a barrel or if I'm you know, urinating in public? What is that? That doesn't have anything to do with virtue and vice. So who cares, right? Um, yeah, yeah. And, and I think that's where the debate can matter practically, where I think as a Stoic, if you're someone like Seneca, Seneca is, of course, excessively wealthy, and he goes to great lengths justifying his wealth in the face of his Stoic philosophy. And of course, there are a number of other examples where you might, say, be planning out a life and think one of those things that would be preferable would be that I have a successful career. And you could define that in a material sense, in a social sense. Um, and you could say, look, I'm being, just being a good Stoic. I think that's preferable. It wouldn't necessarily make my life worse, but it's a good rule of thumb to hold that having a good career matters for. It's, it's a, you know, on all things considered, I'll make decisions based off of the rule, unless, of course, it conflicts with virtue. And what Aristo is saying is, nah, -uh, that's not even, that's not what you want to be doing when you're planning out a life. All you're focused on is what is virtuous. There's not, nothing else coming into the picture about preferred indifference or not. You know, the Stoic might say, I'll pref I prefer chocolate ice cream, but if that's not available, then whatever, I'll have some other flavor. And then, but Aristo's position is closer to, why are we talking about ice cream? It's all about <laughs> virtue, right? So maybe that's, that's, how you'd want to, that's how you'd want to put it to make it this philosophical disagreement. It's a practical one as well. Yeah. And then to pull, so to pull it back out of the practical, back into the philosophical, there's, there's an important point here. So I, I really love the way you framed it. Cynics, virtue is the only good. You know, someone like, like Aristotle, virtue is a good, but there's other good things to have. Stoics in the middle, virtue is the greatest good or really the only good. But there's these other things we would prefer sometimes to have if all things being equal. And I'm being a bit uncharitable to the Stoics here because Aristotle's point would be, you're trying to have it both ways, right? You're trying to double dip. You're trying to take that cynic position and you're trying to keep, you're trying to kind of, I guess, maybe appeal to intuition. Maybe you're just making a mistake of reasoning when you say, ah, it's preferred to have a job. You know, what does that even mean? It's preferred to have a job. That doesn't make any sense. You're either saying it's a good, like Aristotle is, and then you're going against stoic values that virtue is the only good, or it's not a good, and then it's just an indifferent. And we can't evaluate it unless we're in a situation where, unless we're in a particular circumstance and you can evaluate a particular circumstance, but to call it good outside of that circumstance, you're just, you're just becoming Aristotelian then. And I find that a pretty compelling argument, all, all things considered. Maybe that's because I'm, because I lean towards the, the sinecure or it, it's, it's a pretty, it's a pretty, it's an interesting question to ask if you haven't really interrogated preferred indifference, because so normally, we're so used to defending Stoicism against externals. It's interesting to kind of defend Stoicism against somebody who, you know, considers themselves a Stoic or wants to kind of push some of those, some of those internal arguments a bit further. Mm -hmm. The Stoic response to this is that preferred indifference are preferred in virtue of the kind of beings we are, and that's something like we naturally prefer to be healthy and it's not it's not in the sense that we prefer it because it's going to get us some other thing down the line it's not really like having more numbers in a bank account which is valuable because then you can purchase more things that you think are good it's that health all things equal is it, or it's that health is preferable intrinsically you don't want to be healthy for some other reasons it's because Given the kind of beings we are as human organisms, health is desirable. And I think that's what the Stoics would want to say. And they'd probably want to say the same thing about things, other things that they labeled indifference. Well, I guess to push you a bit further on that one, Caleb, doesn't that make it good? 
if it's intrinsically valuable? Yeah, it's something like it's maybe not intrinsically valuable. I maybe lapse into there's always this di difference between something being good and intrinsically preferable. And I guess the view is something like, well, it's naturally preferable or something like this. And then the, the next move is, well, why don't you just say it's preferable? <laughs> and is, are you adding any, is a stoic adding anything else other than, yeah, we prefer to be healthy. And I think they're trying to say, well, we prefer to be healthy because of what health is. And there's something distinct about health being a fit organism where if we were kind of another different, a different kind of creature, we wouldn't, we wouldn't care about it so much. Yeah, that's fair. It's a tough one. I mean, I'm, I, I, I'm not, I guess it's not clear to me why Aristotle's wrong here and I'll have to do some more thinking about it. Yeah, I, yeah. I, I think, I think that's where I land. I, I think it's, I think it's a good, it's a good counter argument that I'll have to spend some more time chewing on as I was doing this reading for this. I was like, oh, I'm, I'm maybe not persuaded, but I, I, I'm at least stuck on this one. It's a good one. Yeah, another kind of, I think just to lay out the philosophical terrain, as it were, another move someone could make, which is not the traditional move, is to say that, yeah, these other things are valuable, but compared to virtue, they're not valuable at all. Whenever, whenever there's a conflict, virtue wins. Or you could even say virtue is infinitely valuable. All these things like health, wealth, what have you. They're just a little bit, you know, a little bit valuable. Yeah. They're always going to lose out, which so, is not the Zeno's view by any means, but is another way to sort of solve this this philosophical problem. Yeah. So I, I compete in Brazilian jiu-jitsu. I'm going to bring it back to jiu-jitsu somehow. And and when you compete in jiu-jitsu, you have points when you score when you score points. And then there's these things called advantages, which are tiebreakers. And you could have 99 advantages, and if the other person has one point they win because advantages are valuable because if it's tied, whoever has more wins, they're tiebreakers, but they're, none of them will ever beat one point. Uh, and so this view is something like that, which is that yeah, you know, exactly. these, they're, they're preferred, but all the riches in the world wouldn't be worth you know, being, being a vicious person for one day or something like this. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. So moving on to the last one, if you people should already be getting the sense here that Aristotle is pretty pretty hardcore. Again, skirting that line between cynic and stoic, really focused on ethics, really focused on practical living. But then there's this third way, this third major deviation. So the first was he rejects stoic logic and physics as being necessary, putting this emphasis on ethic. The second part is he has problems with the idea of preferred indifference. And everything's, it's just an indifferent. You can't talk about preferred or dispreferred indifference without cheating. And the third major difference is that he rejects precepts. So as I mentioned at the start of the episode, precepts are this, it's this type of moral education, this type of advice giving that says, you know, in situation X, you should do Y. So I gave some examples from Sonis Rufus about what should you do in a, how would a stoic act in a marriage? How would a stoic dress? And in a modern context, we see this all the time, right? In a modern context, there could almost be an argument that there is too much, too much of a movement towards precepts, which is this idea of like, you know, the stoic way to trade stocks or the stoic way. I do this, I do this myself, you know, the stoic way to be an athlete or the stoic way to this kind of placing this stoic view onto everything. Now, sometimes we criticize that for a different reason. We criticize that because it can be kind of those, those discussions can get a bit shallow, but that's the kind of stuff we're, we're, we're talking about is this very kind of particular advice, which I guess risks being shallow, but the, the pro-Stoic argument would be, well, it's very valuable if Masonius Rufus is giving it. It's very valuable if Epictetus, Seneca, or Marcus Aurelius are giving it. It's just dangerous when somebody's doing it in a way where they don't understand Stoicism. Now, Aristotle rejected this type of advice as useless, and he had an interesting argument for it, and I'm going to go to Seneca here. So this is in Seneca's Letters on Ethics, Letter 94. He says, Aristotle regards giving specific precepts to people as trivial. What is most effective, he says, are the actual doctrines of philosophy and the, and the constitution of the highest good. One who has understood and learned this well prescribes to himself what he should do in every matter. And if someone does not have the right doctrines, how will injunctions, how will precepts help him when he is chained down by vicious ones? So to go over this argument, Aristotle's argument is, is this, is that 
Particular advice doesn't help vicious people because they'll, they'll not listen to it or they'll follow that advice for the wrong reasons. They won't, they won't really understand it or get it because if they understood it or they got it, they wouldn't need your advice. The second is that it, the sec, his second point is that it doesn't help the wise because the wise already knows what to do. The wise generates rules for themselves when the wise encounters difficult situations. They already, they say, okay, well, I can, I don't need Masonius Rufus to tell me what to do. I'll just do it myself. And the third point is that, or a third argument I take from this is that each situation is particular. And the, the, this comes back to the, that idea about indifference is this real focus on particular situations that Aristotle has. And the only way to know what to do is to understand Stoicism deeply, is to understand these core ideas thoroughly and then reason through the situation yourself. So you're not going to be benefited by something Seneca said that you read about how to navigate the situation. That's not because that's not going to apply to this particular situation. You have to be the kind of person that can generate the correct Stoic way to navigate in the situation yourself. So I have a, I have a counter argument from Seneca here that he talks about in the same letter, but interested to get your view first, Gil. Well, I want to see if I understand the arguments correctly first. So first, there's sort of this line that either the person understands Stoicism or they don't. And if, if they do understand it in the deep sense, they don't need precepts because what the correct action is, what the correct judgment is, is going to be easily obtainable by them because they're essentially wise. And on the other side, if they don't understand Stoicism, then either they've just taken the philosophy on board, in which case that means they're vicious in some way and there's no guarantee that the precept will be applied appropriately, or even worse, they just won't understand what the precept is saying at all. And that's how I understand one of the arguments. And then the other argument has to do with detail where a given precept, they're just at too high level of abstraction. It's something like, you should be more confident when speaking in public. Well, sometimes that's true, but we wouldn't want to apply that, give that advice to everyone. Some people are far too confident when they speak in public. Are those are the two strands that you're, that you're describing, or am I, am I missing one or blurring, blurring some together? No, I think that's charitable. I think that's charitable of my way of understanding it. Yeah. Got it. Practice Stoicism with Stoa. Stoa combines the ancient philosophy of Stoicism with meditation in a practical meditation app. It includes hundreds of hours of exercises, lessons, and conversations to help you live a happier life. Here's what our users are saying. I'm new to Stoicism and wanted to dive deeper with guidance. This is it. I love the meditations. I've practiced meditations with other apps, but this just seems to be more impactful. Life changer. With Stoa, you can really get a sense of how to take yourself out of your thoughts and get a sense of how to handle different, difficult situations. Find it available for a free download in the Play Store and App Store. I think there I think there's a third point, which is that someone will like someone will listen to you. You can see this with kids, right? You tell the kids, don't, you know, go apologize to your, you know, go apologize to your sibling and they'll apologize. And they're doing what you said. They're following your precept on how to act well, but they're doing it for the wrong reasons. And so it's kind of a right. subclass of that vicious point, which is it's not, that, it's not always that they won't listen to it. It's that maybe they'll do it, but if they don't understand stoicism, they're doing it for the wrong reasons. It's kind of like a, it's like a following through the motions, but they didn't actually act well in that situation. Right. So virtue is a matter of acting at the right time for the right reasons and, of course, doing the right thing. And there's always the, the precept. There's no guarantee that someone will understand that the precept entails that they act in this situation at this time in this way. Any, at any point, someone can be confused in their application. Or I would say to go even further, if you were the kind of person that understood the precept, you wouldn't need the precept. Right, right. So it's not that there's a chance that you won't understand it, but I think an even stronger claim that if it was helpful to you, if you were the kind of person that a precept could be helpful to, it's not going to help you because you're not going to get it. Because if you would have got it, you would have understood what was right to do in the situation in the first place. Mm -hmm. Right, right. 
it's sort of it's similar to the situation where the Epictetus talks about, where I think it's this fellow named Flavus who is just been invited to partake in one of Nero's spectacles, one of his parties, one of his absurd plays. And he goes up to the stoic Agrippinus and says, I'm going to go, I'm thinking about whether I should go down to this and sort of debase myself for this tyrant. And what do you think? Do you think I should go? And Agrippinus says, sure. And then uh, Flavus says, well, are you going to go down? And he said, no. And then follow up is, why not? And Agrippinus says, I didn't even deliberate about the matter. I knew what to do. And that he's an instance, a perfect instance of what it is to be wise. And he didn't need to really even reason or use some precept to come to the right judgment, which is, I don't debase myself in front of tyrants. And I don't need to ask others for advice or apply some sort of rule. I already know what to do. Whereas if you're in the other situation, sure, you can go down and go to one of Nero's parties. Hi, all. This is Caleb. Just jumping in to make a quick correction. The person talking to Agrippinus, his name is Florus, not Flavus. You can find this in the first book of Epictetus's Discourses in the section of the things which are and the things which are not in our own power. All right, back to the conversation. Yeah, that's, I think that's a perfect example. And the, I, I try to be as charitable to Aristotle as possible. I think the claim would be something like, and even if, even if Flavus was told, don't go to the party and he didn't go, it's not like he did a good thing there. He just kind right. of followed instructions, which is like, whoop you do You followed instructions. That doesn't make you a good person. The good person is the one who as it didn't even, doesn't even deliberate because they understand that it's not the right thing to do. Right, right. Yeah, absolutely. Well, what do you think about this one? Well, I, I want to get into the counter-argument, which is just the counter-argument okay. I just agree with. I think, I think Seneca hits the nail on the head here. And so Seneca pushes back in this in the same letter, and he says to quote, Weaker characters need someone to lead the way. This you will avoid, this you will do. If, moreover, someone waits for the time when he will know through himself what is best to do, he will go astray in the interim and thus be prevented from reaching the point where he can be content with himself. Therefore, he needs to be ruled while he is beginning to be able to rule himself. And Seneca's point is just, is just a really, I think, a really moderate, reasonable point, which is to say, look, when somebody's developing stoicism, when someone's improving their character, they can improve their character in better or worse ways. And the entire point of going to Epictetus as a teacher, the point of Marcus Aurelius writing his journal is that there's ways to cultivate your character effectively. These, these people aren't sages. They're, they're close or they're, they, they might be people we admire, but they're not, they're not perfect. But there's, way, there's better or worse ways of developing your character. And having someone tell you what to do is a good way to develop your character if that person is a person worth listening to. It's somebody who can lead you in these moments of being unsure. And as Seneca says, you know, Seneca acknowledges, look, it's good if you know through yourself what's the best thing to do. That's fine. But you're, gonna, you're never going to get there. You're going to get pulled astray in the interim and in that time in between and that progress. So in that progress, it's best to have people you trust who can guide you, who can give you advice. Really, really kind of a, a, just a reasonable picture by Seneca here and, and one, that I, one that I agree with. Yeah, that seems right to me. I would say that this, there's the, the, the version of this argument that's more hardcore from Aristo. It's not that persuasive for this reason, I think. I agree with that 100%. But I suppose the other version you mentioned is that advice can be misleading because it's too low detail. Everything's so context specific. And I wouldn't say this is a reason to never heed advice or never give advice, but it is a reason to keep in mind that there's some law of equal and opposite advice, which you should always keep in mind, which is that if you're in one situation, some a, a precept would be exceptionally helpful, but you could find yourself in a different situation where the exact opposite of that precept is what you need to hear. So one should always be skeptical. And that, that I think, is a, is, a good, is a plausible concern, especially when people talk about things like mental models. I think most mental models are basically useless because they're so low detail. And to be more precise, if someone doesn't know what I mean, they might, someone might argue something like, you need to know these concepts in game theory in order to understand 
how to invest your finances well. At that level of sort of abstraction where you're using precepts from game theory to apply to your investment decisions, it's probably just much better to be direct. Go be direct with whatever context you're in. Think about what are think about investment more generally and not some abstract laws about how investment might somehow, you know, be like game theory or something more abstract. Yeah. So there's something worth pulling out here, Caleb, because because the the opposite of precepts is kind of high level theory, right? The opposite of precept in the way Seneca talks about it. And this again was letter 94 of his letters to Achilles or letters on ethics, depending on the, the translation you're reading. The opposite of precepts is framed as theory. So it's framed as going even higher level. So what I was hearing you to say is like, look, precepts are not detailed enough, so be careful. But it, it's kind of interesting because the solution to that is to go really, really high level is the solution they recommend. So I guess the, 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 to word that differently, I would say the issue with precepts is not that they're not specific enough. The issue with precepts is that they can make you lazy or it can make you feel like you don't need to evaluate this particular situation you're in. So the issue is the, the issue, and that's when going to this high level can be helpful because at least when you're at this high theoretical level, you say, okay, well, virtue is the only good, vice is the only evil. You, you're not confused that you have the particulars. You know, you didn't say, well, Masonius Rufus told me to dress this way today, so that's what I'm going to yeah. do. Or Epictetus told me I can't cut my beard. You're not confused about having these particulars. So you, you spend the, then you will go down and, and evaluate the circumstance. So I guess they can kind of lull you into this sense of false confidence or the sense of just kind of, as I talked about earlier, just following instructions without really understanding why the instructions are there in the first place. Yeah, I suppose it's, it's, it, there's this ladder of abstraction. There's first, there's theoretical pictures at the very top. And that's something like virtue is the only good. And then there's this level of maybe advice that's something closer to, you know, be more confident in public or Seneca has a few as well. It's fortune favors the brave, but the coward is foiled by his faint heart. And that's sort of at this moderate level where you're not really targeting a specific life circumstance, but you are talking in terms of heuristics. And then even lower, there's more detailed things such as, you know, if you want to do this in your, in your fashion sense or something like this, you know, if you want to do something very specific in your style, then this is what you ought to do. Uh, so at, at each, each level, I suppose, was what Risto is saying is that it's the highest level of abstraction that matters. Whereas I think what I was saying earlier was something like, in general, you want to be as detailed as possible. Or maybe, and well, maybe also understanding theory, but it's probably like the mid-level is where you maybe want to avoid, avoid, avoid your thinking, if that makes sense. Yeah. I, I guess I, I guess I don't have any issue with the mid-level as a, I don't have an issue with any of these, as long as they're methods for directing people and you're still like Epictetus, stopping every impression, evaluating each circumstance on its own. I guess I don't see the, I don't see an issue because when you mentioned, oh, game theory, you have to understand these ideas of game theory. Like if I was new to game theory, I would like to read that. I would think that's interesting and that's helpful, but it would be a terrible stopping point and it would be a terrible thing to only apply in the circumstance. So I, I go back to Epictetus here, which is like stop the impression, test it, evaluate it. So, so, and that's one of the big takeaways of Stoicism, right? Is this ability to slow things down. So you have more space to evaluate individual circumstances, to evaluate when somebody insults you or something happens that seems incredibly harmful or bad to stop and evaluate that and say, do I really want to think that way? Do I, do I really think this kind of deserves a passionate response from me? Cause it is really a true evil or true good. And so taking the time to do that is, is what I think matters. And I don't think you're doing that if you're just following stock advice. And so that's, that's, I guess my point is you're losing kind of a skill, kind of critical thinking mm -hmm. skill, which I don't think is the point Aristo's making here, but, but is the one that I would say is, is the worry about precepts. But I think as we both agree on, 
And most people would agree, listening, I assume, is that well, you, you need some help when you're making, when you're on your way, right? Like obviously the best thing to do is you're just born, you're born a saint, so you're born a perfect person and you generate the truths from yourself in each situation you encounter and you just, but that's just not the way people work, right? It's a really, it's a really kind of hardcore position. The, the one other point I wanted to make on this is that it's kind of the moral development. So the, the Stoics have this claim that all people are equally vicious or equally good. And their claim was that you're either perfect, you're either, you're either virtuous, you're either a sage, or you're vicious. And all people that are vicious are equally vicious. And they give some metaphors for this. They would talk about a line. You know, a line is either straight or it's bent. It's not kind of straight. It's not really close to being straight. It's either straight or it's bent. Or someone who's underwater, they're either drowning or they have air. Doesn't matter if they're at the bottom of the ocean or they're just below the water. You know, they're, 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 they're still drowning. Mm -hmm. And I see Aristotle as kind of the, the, the moral argument. Like if you took that argument as literal as possible and you applied it to self-improvement, you would say, well, you know, there's no point of this self. There's no point of these precepts or kind of trying to, this might be uncharitable, but trying to teach with precepts, these vicious people, because it's not going to help them. They're not going to understand it. They take it for the wrong reasons. The only thing to do is to become virtuous and, and navigate the situations yourself as a virtuous person. I almost see the way I read into this is that he's taking that argument to its natural or most extreme conclusion where someone like Seneca, Epictetus, they're much more grounded in you know, trying to help out fellow people, their roles as teachers, their experience with the complexities of moral progress. So they take a much more practical, lenient view. Yep. It's similar to, I think Marcus Aurelius has a line that's something like, all you need to worry about is doing the right thing at some point. One of these fragments that he wrote down, wrote down to himself. And that's sort of the, the Aristo view as well. Anything else you want to add? I think that's it. Awesome. Cool. Great. Thanks, Sweet. Phil. Fun, fun chatting about these, uh, the lesser known Stoics. And for those listening, let us know if you like these topics or there's anybody else you want us to cover. Definitely. Thanks for listening, all. Thanks for listening to Stoic Conversations. If you found this conversation useful, please give us a rating on Apple, Spotify, or whatever podcast platform you use, and share it with a friend. We are just starting this podcast, so every bit of help goes a long way. And I'd like to thank Michael Levy for graciously letting us use his music. Do check out his work at ancientliar.com, and please get in touch with us at Stoa at stoameditation.com if you ever have any feedback or questions. Until next time.